Hi, I'm Rick Hess, Director of Education Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. And I'm Pedro Noguera, Dean of the USC Washington School of Education. Welcome to our podcast, Common Ground, Conversations on Schooling. Two of us often fall on different sides of the big questions in education, but today we're going to talk through some of the educational issues of the day in search for deeper understanding and sometimes common ground. So Pedro, you know, I, I've heard um, podcasts as they were kind of wrapping around. I've never actually done that, but so it's interesting. Today marks um, our final taping of a Common Ground podcast. This grew out of the book that you and I did together a couple of years ago. We have spent a good chunk of the pandemic and beyond doing conversations and appearances with audiences across the country, most of them virtual. Um, we've been doing this podcast and, you know, we both, you more than me, have a ton of stuff on our plates and it just seemed like a good time to maybe pull this chapter to a close. And so I think today's conversation is really a chance for us to reflect a little bit on the, the whole common ground exercise we've been engaged in, kind of what we've learned, what it means. Uh, the National Assessment of Educational Progress came out just a day or two ago. Um, we could talk a bit about how to interpret that in light of what we're talking about. Um, I'm curious, as as this whole thing comes to an end, kind of what's on your mind and what are you thinking about? So it, it's been a, um, a good experience um, for me because, you know, we've had these this dialogue and uh, this the book and uh, and the presentations during this period of so much intense polarization politically in the country. And uh, it's made me, you know, reflect on who's even interested in what we're trying to accomplish here. <laughs> and the, the good news is there are a lot of people interested. Uh, there are a lot of people who are taken by the importance of us having a dialogue like this, of, of talking to each other, of trying to understand, not just talk at each other, uh, where we stand on issues. But there are a lot of people on the left and right who could care less, um, who don't think that dialogue is, is what we're, where we're at. It's about winning. Mm -hmm. And um, that 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 concerns me. It concerns me because uh, it, it says, I, you know, this country is really in trouble. We're so deeply fractured. Uh, we're so divided. And uh, and, you know, we just you just right now you can't turn on the news without being inundated by ads that do nothing to enlighten, just further the polarization. And uh, so, you know, on the one hand, I feel good about what we've done. On the other hand, I'm, I'm forced to recognize it doesn't seem to make much of a difference in the larger scheme of things. I don't know. I, I don't want to be a pessimist about it, but I'm yeah. not feeling very optimistic right now. No, no, I think it's um, I think it's a really important point, you know, because it's funny. One of the things that you hear on both right and left is the sense of urgency that catastrophe is around the corner. And when you're in a hurry to save the world, the point is just to get it done. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think the reality is, as I think about the exercise, I don't know that there's a single thing where you or I have changed one another's mind on anything that matters. I mean, we've been talking about these issues at Brogan for two years, and we haven't convinced each other to think, oh, geez, you have it right. Really? I thought goal... I convinced you, Rick. I thought I had won you over. <laughs> <laughs> and if, right? And if your goal is, I know I'm right, then you're like, wait a minute, you guys spent two years and what was accomplished? We don't have time for this quote-unquote dialogue silliness. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's partly a question of 
you know, how you think we're going to address the problem yeah. and strengthen our communities. We haven't changed each other's mind, but man, I don't know. I, I, I feel, I, I feel like I understand things in a way that, and I, I mean, I've, I've spent a decades in higher education and Washington education at, at work. These are not like right of center places. So I've had a lot of exposure to my friends, you know, who, who see things differently. But the chance to really go back and forth, to talk about these things at length, to really develop a, a relationship in which we talk about these things has, I think, just been enormously helpful for me in seeing places where we are on the same page, yeah. in understanding that um, I shouldn't be too quick to just say, heck with that when I hear somebody's language, because I've heard you use that language in a way that I've seen there's a lot more underneath it that I might not have appreciated. Yeah. And I think if that's the goal, it's not dialogue for dialogue's sake, it's dialogue to get us to a place where we can find agreement and understand why we disagree and build trust. But you're like, you're right. That's not what gets clicks and that's not what gets you on cable news. No, no. You know, and, and one of my takeaways um, is really the importance of creating an atmosphere where different perspectives can can flourish and, and where we're not shutting down people who don't think like us. And, uh, you know, I had the experience recently of, of um, speaking to my faculty here at USC, and I said, look, diversity in perspectives is, is as important as other forms of diversity. And if we can't ensure that our students are reading about people who think differently, encountering ideas that are different from that of our faculty, we're not serving them well. Because they're going to go out there into the real world where they're going to meet people who support vouchers or who are not so keen on racial diversity and equity. And if they don't know how to engage in that discussion because they've only heard one position, they're going to be, um, um, but they're not going to be well prepared. And what was surprising, there were many faculty who agreed with me silently and said to me afterwards, I'm so glad you said that. But they didn't speak up and say, I agree with you. There were a few people who publicly said, I disagree with you. Uh, they can hear that perspective on Fox News if they want. They're not going to hear it in my class. And I said, look, we have academic freedom. I'm not going to tell you what to teach. I am going to say, I think this is important. And as long as I'm the dean, I will support people who actively, whether it be students or faculty, who think it's important to have a broad spectrum of ideas in the curriculum and among the speakers we invite to campus, et cetera. So I do think one of my takeaways is that the importance of putting yourself out there, taking the risk even of alienating people in your own camp by saying, look, it is important for higher ed, it's important for um, American democracy, it's important to the way we think about our future, to not shut people down who don't think like we do. Why do you think it was that faculty who agreed with what seems like a pretty historically grounded vision of higher ed, like, Let's let different ideas in. Why do you think they were reluctant to say so out loud? I, I think because they're afraid of, of being labeled um, 
in some way, um, being labeled uh, a right winger, a racist, whatever it is. And that that's really unfortunate. Um, it's unfortunate because that labeling does happen. And people are very quick to um, to try to cancel someone or to judge them in ways that then limit them, stigmatize them. And I think that's a real problem. Uh, a few years ago, I had a colleague uh, at Berkeley who has since passed away. And uh, he said to a student, a, a young woman of color, who explained what her interest was. And basically, she wanted to study the experiences of young women of color in academia. And he said to her, he said, I'll be glad when I meet uh, a student of color who wants to do more than just study themselves. And she was so hurt by his comment that she came to see me in tears. And I said, you know, I understand why you might be hurt because, you know, on the other hand, I do think that there's gotta be room in the academy because there's a lot in the, in the canon, in the literature about the experiences of people of color, women, gays, uh, that has not still um, been investigated. I said, but to the degree that all you do is study yourself, then who's studying school finance? Who's studying educational policy? Who's studying the big issues affecting the field? You're basically saying, we're only gonna study ourselves and we're gonna leave the white men to study everything else. Why? Why shouldn't you also be addressing those big topics as well? And um, I don't know if she appreciated it, (laughs) (laughs) but I think that's part of the pushing back that we've got to do. You know, it's funny, just a night or two ago, I had for the first time, in almost three years, uh, these common ground symposia that I host in DC. And it was interesting. I kicked it off by talking a little bit about our experience with the book. But it's something we've been doing, we've been doing since the Obama years, um, about 20 DC influentials around the table. So there were leaders from the teacher unions in the room, uh, senior uh, officials from like the Biden Department of Education, uh, senior former officials from the Trump <laughs> Department of Education. Uh, folks from the major uh, right-wing and left-wing think tanks. And what's striking, and, and the conversation was like, is there anywhere we can agree? And what's striking is how incredibly civil a conversation it was. In fact, those of us hosting it really to kick the tires, because for all of the talk about how this stuff is manufactured, um, there's a certain kind of professional in the space who understands that there's no value in sitting in a room and just hurling insults. Yeah. So you had folks who work for Republicans and Democrats in D.C. Um, saying, look, I think student loan forgiveness is just indefensible and terrible or too much school closure, but it wasn't personal. And people weren't shouting right. and they were articulating where they were coming from. And it got a couple of heat. It, we eventually got it heated at a couple points, thank God, because it should be a little heated. Um, <laughs> but there was a... a, a, a maturity in it which seems you know incredibly healthy and i think part of my frustration is when i look at think tanks or uh big name columnists and certainly universities these are supposed to be places where folks like you and me who are so fortunate that we get to spend all our time talking about ideas and getting a big microphone and like the least we can do is try to model what it looks like to engage in a way that respects people who disagree. And I just get so frustrated with whether it's Fox News or MSNBC, whether it's pundits at, at you know at, at NPR or the New York Times, 
whether it's you know professors at major universities, folks who can't be bothered to do that, it seems to me just a massive betrayal uh, of the roles they of the of the really fortunate kind of glamorous roles they've chosen to take. Yeah, yeah, and it's um, you know what 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 we lose is we not only lose the kind of free expression of ideas, we lose our ability to solve our common problems. Because when we spend our time just kind of staking out our positions, we're not really thinking through the complexity of problems that we face in our society, whether we're talking about how do we educate our kids or how do we deal with climate change? Because we are so far apart, we can't work together to address these issues. And uh, that, that doesn't bode well for us as a nation. And uh, I just, I just I, you know, I... <laughs> Like I said, I want to be optimistic. I read a, a, a letter by a, a teacher in Colorado this week. And, um, you know, she was from Aurora, Colorado, where there was a terrible school, uh, not movie theater shooting a few years back. And she said, you know, I'm, I'm finding it so hard to bring a sense of hope to my students now. She's in her 20s. She said, my students are at saying, you know, why should we study if the, if the earth is not going to be around in 10 years? Uh, if we're running out of water in the Colorado River. And she said, when they ask questions like that of me, I say, you're right. I don't know. <laughs> and it, it's such a, a grim prospect. But I, I have to believe, I have to hope that we can, we can continue to try to engage in dialogues like we've done, uh, model a, a kind of mature approach to addressing issues that's not simply about shouting. I ran into Bob Shrum yesterday. Bob, uh, you may know, is the Democratic strategist who teaches here at USC. And uh, he was walking by. I said, hey, Bob, how you doing? He said, hey. He says, I'm using your book, the book you did with Rick, in my class. And the students love it. And we spent a few minutes talking about the book and what they loved about it. And it was a good sign. Because I do think there are students out there who are thirsty for this kind of dialogue. So... Uh, that well, you know, gives me a it, sense of hope. You know, and some, you know, a point that, 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 you know, the Colorado teacher, I mean, this is, you know, apocalyptic thinking rarely does anybody any good. Uh, I mean, you think about like the Great Awakening every sense, I mean, in some sense, right, we've had this, this secular, non-sectarian kind of Great Awakening over the last 10 or 20 years. But, but, but one of the things that, that you, that I think what happens in like revivalism is it's easy to lose perspective. Yeah. And look, I mean, the world's not, you know, climate change is, I think, a real danger. You and I have little kids. Um, I am very concerned about what's going to happen and the, how we address it. But look, the Earth's not ending in 10 years. Um, I, I mean, this, the, you know, this is the same kind of like magazine coverage from the 70s when, the, when we were entering the new ice age. It was on the cover of like Time and Newsweek in like 1973 that like, or the population bomb, that we were all going to be starving by 1990. Like, this kind of catastrophic, apocalyptic thinking tends to freeze us up. I mean, it's these are real challenges. We should talk about them. We should talk about children getting murdered at school. Absolutely. We should, you know, we should talk about the fact that a, a lunatic in Moscow has a bundle of atomic bombs and that there are fascists in China who are threatening us. These are real, not, nobody should minimize any of this. But it's what we, we also need to not be afraid to teach our kids that 
Uh, to my mind, race relations in America are profoundly better than they were 75 years ago. And when people say nothing's changed, I think they are, I think they're both wrong. And I think, but I think they're also feeding themselves a false sense of hopelessness. All, all the sacrifices made by so many people in the 1950s and 60s, I mean, actually did lead, lead to real change. You know, we talk, we hear a lot about income inequality. Um, somebody who makes $30,000 in the U.S. today uh, has a quality of life, a life expectancy, health, access to medical care, food that would have been unimaginable to the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers even a, a century ago. So, I mean, I think we, we, we need to be careful not to preach a, less, a message of hopelessness because I don't know. I mean, honestly, you ask me, would I, is there anybody alive 150 years ago that I would want to change places with? The richest monarch in the world? No, no. I mean, the, 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 the quality of life that people take for granted today on so many counts, uh, the, 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 you know, the cleanness of our air because of the work that has been done by laws that have been passed in the Environmental Protection Agency. L.A., smog, you know, folks who are, folks who are students at USC today probably can't imagine what the smog was like 35 years ago. So I think we just also need to be careful um, that we don't allow students to get some fixation in their mind, which is divorced from the real complexity of both the challenges, but the bounty yeah. um, that, that, that constitute this world. So, you know, the way I think about it, Rick, is I, 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 I've called myself a pragmatic optimist, right? <laughs> uh, that is, I, I am realistic about the problems we face. At the same time, I'm hopeful uh, about our ability to solve problems in the future. Um, but it's, it's striking the balance. You know, I heard... Uh, uh, the Archbishop Desmond Tutu talking uh, a few years ago before he died uh, during the pandemic. And uh, he's emerged, uh, well, well, before he died, as one of the fiercest critics of the African National Congress. Now, this coming from someone who was one of the fiercest critics and opponents of the apartheid government for the corruption and for other problems in South Africa. And then he was asked uh, by a, a journalist, he says, has the country made progress? He says, absolutely. He says, there are millions more kids in school now than ever before. Millions more people have water. Millions more people have housing. Anybody who says we haven't made progress is not acknowledging reality. He says, do we have a long way to go? Absolutely. And do we, have lead, do we need new leaders? Absolutely. But to not acknowledge the progress is to not acknowledge the work that's gone on. So I, I agree with you to a large degree. And, uh, and I think that we do need to take note of the progress we've made as a, as a nation, even the NAEP scores to come up with a current issue. The, the, what the NAEP scores show is that we went backward um, in, in, in reading and math, uh, but we didn't go back as far as we were, <laughs> right? And, and so, yeah, it was a setback pandemic was a setback in a lot of ways, but it was also an opportunity for a reset in how we do things. Um, we've, we've, we've focused a, a lot, and we've talked about this before, on assessing kids. We really need to talk about how do we teach kids? How do we get kids stimulated? How do we challenge them? How do we inspire them so that we can produce the next generation of scientists and writers who will have the courage and the 
the wherewithal intellectually to address the problems we face, not with fear, but with a, a real sense of purpose about what can be done. So that's the reason why I believe education is so important. When we, when we focus on education, we are inevitably focusing on the future. And, and that's, to me, the best resource we have for a better future. Yeah, I mean, you know, that, I mean, one of the things that's so disconcerting about, you know, folks like that teacher who have this sense of hopelessness is, I mean, education, we always, every year we get to start fresh. We get a bunch of six-year-olds who we haven't screwed up yet. I mean, it, it, you know, it's pretty remarkable chance to like, what can we do better than we did, the, better than we did the last go-round? You know, I mean, I, I, I love that Tutu story. And, you know, on the Nate piece, for instance, not only are you right that we took a huge step back, but we're still ahead of where we were when we started, when we started Nate, but it, it, we also, it's not entirely clear what to make of the Nate results. So Florida did reasonably well, who opened their schools fast, but so did California, who did not open their schools fast. Um, and there's questions here, um, you know, especially like when we get to the urban name, like Los Angeles did vastly better than I would have expected. Right. Um, and as did New York City. But there's a question of they also had a lot of attrition. So was the Nate sampling ever to, able to control for that? And one of the things that happens in a hot take kind of my team, your team world is nobody has time or patience to start trying to sort through that. And really, like, look to the, you know, statisticians to help us unpack this. Everybody's got to have their thirty-second take, um, uh, you know, the day of, and then we get locked in and start cheering for our teams. And I think part of again the exercise that you and me is, you know, we've we've talked about this and written about this. The act of having the time to write back and forth, of regularly going, you know, to and fro, gave us a chance to like reflect. And yeah. think and not feel like we had to have like the, the, the 12 second kind of hot take immediately. And part of what we need, again, politicians are going to be politicians, what they do. And people who are talking about this stuff at the corner bar or the soccer game, they're going to do what they do. But for the people who choose to lead on education, whether they're superintendents or school board members or provost or college presidents or there's an obligation i think to really try to create these spaces to really try to kind of bite down on your first impulse to just kind of like lash out or or, or just do the talking points and you know if over the course of the last couple of years we've given folks some suggestions on how to do that um some ideas about why that's useful, encourage folks to maybe do that a bit more. You know, um, I've probably spent a lot of lot more time on things that were a lot less useful at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And I I I I maintain that um I'm I'm committed <laughs> to um looking at the issue from multiple perspectives to um acknowledging that, um, you know, there's another way, of, even when I make up my mind about something, there's another way to think about it that is not necessarily insane or, um, you know, ideologically wrong. And that's the way it works, you know, in, in a lot of these issues, educational and social issues. So, you know, Rick, I, I appreciate your willingness to partner with me in this 
exercise, right, in this dialogue. It takes at least two to have a dialogue, and, and you've been a great partner in this work. And so I, I want to thank you for inviting me from the very beginning. It was your idea. I've constantly given you the credit. Um, and I, I appreciate um, the fact that you thought this would be a, a benefit, not just to us, but to others out there who are thirsty for uh, seeing these complex issues explored in the way we have. So thanks. Hey, thank you, man. Appreciate you making the time amidst all your obligations. Uh, you know, I think it's been, it's been a useful exercise. It's been a rewarding exercise. And yeah, again, on a personal level, I've just really enjoyed the chance to do this with you. Um, it's been, it's been a, you know, one of the real pleasures of my professional career. With that, we will, uh, you know, th th this podcast, I think, has done what it was meant to do. And uh, we, we will go into other things, but we will uh, keep at uh, this effort. And um, I'm sure we'll have other opportunities to uh, come back around this way. All right. Maybe I'll see you in D.C. next time I get there. Sounds good, my friend. Take right, care, take Peter. Take care. If you're interested in hearing more, check out our book, A Search for Common Ground, conversations about the toughest questions in K-12 education. Thanks for listening to Common Ground, Conversations on Schooling, and thanks to our producers, Tracy Shera and Wesley Armstrong. You can subscribe to Common Ground on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a review. And feel free to let us know what topics you'd like us to discuss by sending an email to podcasts at AEI.org. Thanks for joining. Until next time. Take care, Rick. Take care, bud.